So here we are. Hello. Um, this is the latest podcast from the Discover Plus podcast team here in Cornwall. Um, and I'm Theo Blackmore. I'm kind of the podcast -er at the moment or one of the podcast team. Um, and today I'm talking to Rebecca Taylor Edwards Brilliant. Uh, at Disability Rights UK. Thank you very much. So I want to talk to you today, Rebecca, because we've worked together a bit yeah um, past year or so and that's in relation to your work that you're doing with disabled people's organizations so I don't know if you could you perhaps just explain a bit about what your role is at Disability Rights UK yeah for sure um before before I pop in Theo I just want to say that my pronouns are she her for anyone who wants to contact me in the future um and I'm the DPO development manager at Disability Rights UK which is a new post. I came in in September and I can't believe it's been the best part of a year already. Uh, but this work is is quite broad in scope, but in it, in essence, it's it's designed to break down the barriers to the disabled people's organization sector um, and all the wonderful grassroots groups, the larger DPO organizations that exist within it. It's it's co-productive by design, so it's very much um, me sitting amongst multiple DPOs of which um, you Theo you sit on the steering board for um, working together to see how we can break down the barriers to the sector's development and also um, build capacity within lots of um, DPOs generally so how we can boost the sort of product productivity how we can make it more inclusive and accessible um, and also help organizations that have been struggling quite um, substantially since the pandemic which of course Theo you spoke about in your research as well yeah I mean you know the pandemic was an amazing thing wasn't it it was um it really hit the, the disabled people's organizations very hard so just yeah. we're talking in acronyms a little bit but the acronym DPO stands for disabled people's organizations <laughs> yeah 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 I mean it's it's an interesting term uh with some variation amongst different organizations that it represents some groups go by DDPO which means deaf and disabled people's organizations some define themselves as uh, service user-led groups others don't really define themselves with a sort of acronym or a, a standard definition they're just led by disabled people um, and a lot of groups that exist uh, really in intersectional forms of marginalization so they represent um, you know, being individuals with lived experience of disability, but other forms of protected characteristics in the UK. And they exist quite wholly in themselves. You know, I'm not um, disabled and queer. I'm a disabled queer organisation. So they don't define themselves as DPOs, but we include them um, and we work with them because they are led by disabled people. For those of you who don't really know about um, how you can define yourself as that uh, at Disability Rights UK, we recognize a DPO as a group that is led around 50% of your workforce at a minimum by disabled people and people with lived experience of disability. Um, and your board has to be 75% uh, of individuals who identify as disabled. If you have a board, some groups aren't char charities, so they don't have a board. Um, and the only other uh, sort of defining feature is that you work for the progression of the disability movement and you work in accordance to the social model of disability so that's really in essence I mean Theo you could break down that definition better than I could but you're working to break down um, societally based disablement and why in society we have disabled individuals and that's in sort of opposition to any sort of medical model and the medical model would say well it's actually about the individual other organizations in the disability movement have been quite instrumental in arguing against that over the years yeah, I mean, the social model of disability sort of came about starting from the 1970s, didn't it? Yeah. There's an organisation called the Union of the Physically Impaired Against Segregation, or UPIUS, and they wrote something called the Fundamental Principles of Disability. And in fact, I was talking to a disabled people's organisation, Greater Manchester Coalition of Disabled People, and they've got, they've got a disability archive there. Wow. And I said to them, what sort of stuff have you got? And they've got a load of stuff. And I can't remember the exact amount. I said, how do you quantify the amount of stuff you've got? And they said, well, when you're quantifying archives, you quantify it in length. And they've got 110 metres of archive. 
And so that's everything they laid down on the floor if you laid it out. That must have taken a while. It might be more than that. I think it might be more like a thousand meters. But anyway, and I said, have you got any fundamental principles of disability? And they said, yeah, we've got seven copies. So, you know, there's a few of them floating about still. And it's a really important document. You know what, Theo, I'd love to to whiz round there and take a look at it. I mean, this is something we've talked about before, but, you know, I myself am, am 24. I'm fairly new to the DPO space. Um, I've been disabled for six years now. And as a young person who acquired many of my conditions later in life, well, some will define that as early in life. You know, we've talked about the, the difference between the young generation of disabled people and the sort of the history that came before us and the disconnection. And what I would love, and I think a lot of young disabled people would love is to create more space to connect those that sort of the history and the future of the movement together a little bit more so yeah I think that would that's a pretty interesting space to to be and I'd love to see those archives yeah and it's a really interesting space like you say so it's important for younger disabled people I think I'm an older disabled person so I'm 56 so um for those of you who are listening on a podcast rather than looking on a YouTube I'm sitting here no hair you know long in <laughs> the chin but anyway it's um you know, it's it's for me, it's something which is a bit of the lived experience of my life because I got involved in the disability movement back in the 1990s. So I've kind of got a long track record. So I've kind of been in it for a very long time. But for people like yourself, people, younger people coming in and getting involved, there is a lot of stuff to find out about. You know, it's silly to keep on reinventing stuff over and over again. So to understand the social model and the struggles that we all went through in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, you know, it's um, something which I think is really important. Yeah, and I think it's integral to the progression of the movement as well, Theo. You know, we was actually talking about this um, at Disability Rights this morning before before we recorded this about um, the importance of connecting with the younger movement. And I mean, on one stage, it's because a lot of the the young younger generation of the disability movement are quite um, adamant, as they should be, in their sort of demands for human rights. Um, and what they're doing in, in many respects is trying a lot of the things that were started out and attempted in the 70s and the 80s. And, um, you know, on one hand, there's a lot to be learned from, from the older generation who did that work before. And they can say, well, we tried this. These were the methods that were effective to progress the movement. This didn't work out for us, but maybe it only didn't work out for us at that time because of the sort of um, zeitgeist of the, the society. So maybe you could try it this way now in 2023 going onwards um, and it's also quite important you know we don't want to leave um, disabled people behind in, as you know our language progresses and we're coming up with all of these incredibly and you know much needed terms but not always accessible to the older generation who don't use TikTok or Twitter or whatever you know to bring them along with us um, as well because well fundamentally because they're they're part of the movement too yeah you know I think it's really important this idea about understanding what's been before so like the social model of disability which you know Mm. was developed when it was in those circumstances by that group of people um, if only so that the younger generation can then grow from that or ignore it or make decisions about (laughs) it you know what I mean it's about yeah absolutely there's an evolutionary process isn't there and so Mm. I don't think as a model, the social model is something which will be ignored. I think it's a really valid, valid piece of work. But I do think that there are new directions to go in. And all this stuff you're mentioning, TikTok there and all the different ways, yeah. this fangled modern stuff that's all coming out and about, you know, yeah. there's there's a load of stuff that could be used and could be done to develop the organisations and the movements in, in different ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, if it helps to anyone, I still can't understand TikTok too much. So um you know, you're not alone out there. And I think, you know, this potentially goes into a little bit of my research, which we could just discuss, Theo, but, you know, one of the most interesting findings from my research, in my opinion, was when I was just talking to people who had been in the space for a while and we were discussing the their experiences of conflict within the movement as well as the DPO sector. Um, and their arguments was, well, it's difficult, conflict is difficult, but it has been the backbone of progressing the movement 
going forward. You know, we have to dispute with each other about how progressive and inclusive our stances are. Otherwise, we can't be more progressive and more inclusive. Um, so, yeah, I think there's scope for other people in the disability movement to say, actually, no, the social model of disability isn't inclusive enough, is it isn't radical enough. Um, it isn't taking the movement in the direction it needs to be to make you know, long-term change. And that should be done. We should create more spaces, in my opinion, to debate among each other. But the capacity of the DPO sector is fairly limited. So the challenge is how do we do that as well as keep our organizations um, alive and running so successfully? That leads neatly onto your research. You did a massive <laughs> research, didn't you? I mean, you've been in post since September. So how many months is that? It's like nine or 10 months or something. Yeah, yeah. And you gone so quickly. You yeah. Did a massive piece of work. I did. I mean, I suppose it helps that I, I came into post right after my master's. So I was already in that research mode. Um, so what was your master's in? Carry it on. I did my master's in global health and development. Um, so somewhat different, but, you know, I see a lot of correlation in between the health space and the disability space. Um, but that's another conversation going forward. But um, my, my research into the DPO sector was a four-month mixed method analysis. So to de-jargon a little bit, um, mixed methods means that you use both quantitative data, that's numbers, and qualitative data. So that's talking to people and, and sort of gathering their experiences. I was very open in design, you know, there was a sort of the harrowed focus of being specifically on development and specifically of the experiences of the DPO sector, but um, it had a lot of insights into the disability movement overall. Uh, we interviewed around um, 32 DPOs. We also interviewed around six voluntary sector organizations that weren't DPOs to get a sort of understanding of the comparison between um, the voluntary sector at large and the DPO sector. Um, and I, I believe there was about 61 participants um, with around 37 to 40 interviews and focus groups. So an interview was, was um, to de-jargon de a little bit more, was to just sit down with people and say, you know, this is what we want to do. What do you think of it? It was very open in design. Um, and I, we let uh, DPOs and representatives of DPOs, usually the, the directors and CEOs of the organization to speak on their experiences of the organization, how it's set up, what does it do? What is their experience of development? Um, and the focus groups did the same sort of thing. Some or some interviews had follow-ups with, with interested DPOs. And then what I did with all that information was, well, when I collected a, a large body of notes, which has uh, backed up my computer forever, but I conducted what is called a thematic analysis on that quant qualitative data. To, again, to de-jargon, you know, the science space is filled with lots of terminology that is actually quite simple in its definition, but why we have so much jargon is beyond me. Um, thematic analysis is in its simplest form, looking at the, the transcripts and the quotes and mainly my notes over and over again to understand what was popping up over again. Um, so for example, if people was talking a lot about relationships, I would create a theme called relationships and underneath that theme, you could break it down a little bit more into a subordinate theme. So what relationship types of relationships are important and how the relationships fun, function. That's almost as specific of it. So overall, I, I found around 17 themes. So themes are what did people talk about the most, not what's the most important, but really what, what was most popular. And then I huddled them together into four quarters. If, if those of you who want to read my research, um, I de-jargon it a lot in the sort of glossary section, but uh, uh, those sorts of four quarters are also called overarching themes. Um, and that's sort of what are all the sort of topics of conversation indicating? So if I could, Theo, I'll, I'll break down a little bit into what I found. Yeah, that'd be great. And then we can talk about it a little bit more. So I'll, I'll give an overarching view because there's, the research is freely available and should be published on the Disability Rights UK website. If any other DPO also wants to pop, pop that on their website as well, that's freely available. Um, and you can get in contact with me beforehand if you want the Word document. 
Um, but overall, the, the sort of biggest quarter that I looked at was labeled the DPO ecosystem. So this is looking at what is the relationships and connectivity, the inclusivity of the DPO space looking like. Overall, this, the, it was defined by the fact that the dis, disability movement in the DPO space was quite in, individual in its sort of setup in comparison to, you know, the marketing sector or the sales sector in that we care a lot about what we do. You know, that we talk a lot in human rights about the personal being political. This is a political space, but it is deeply personal. It is led by individuals who are, are quite literally the first in line when it comes to being at the forefront of the policy changes by government or uh, disablement by society. We experience that every day, so we're affected by it. And therefore, everything we do in the sector is deeply personal, personable. So all the connections and relationships and networking which would be probably how we you define it in another sector is is personal relationships because we care a lot about what we do and it also defines how we've moved generally it's been quite a sort of grassroots sector by nature we've all done this together for the for over the years and then we created organizations to survive the this theme really looked at how those connectivities survive so because we're such a deeply personable sector our relationships are how we survive it's how we tell each other about what funding is available or what opportunities can come up or you know what I'm doing this in this space over in Kent can you do this over here because I think it would be really impactful for the disabled community over there um, but unfortunately over the years because DPO's capacity has been limited increasingly even more so after the pandemic due to limited funding in the sector, which gets talked about quite a lot across the report. Um, our ability to connect with each other is quite difficult. And so the challenge here is how can the DPO capacity building project and, and other organizations who want to work in DPO capacity building really focus on promoting the connectivity of the sector. Sorry, yeah, I've got the, a... the, the thing that struck me most, I think, from, the, from when I did that bit of work you know, during the pandemic was just that lack of connectivity between yeah. So it's really difficult. You know, anyway, it's difficult full stop anyway, because my DPO is down here in Cornwall and we're in the far southwest. So the nearest one is in Devon. Yeah. That's already a hundred miles away. So if we want to yeah. talk to somebody up in Yorkshire or somebody over in London, you know, that's just like a phenomenal distance. It's getting easier now because of the internet, but there was no kind of internal structures there to facilitate that or to no space within there to make that happen. Yeah, and, it, it, and connecting the sector digitally or in any sort of way is, is a big piece of work. I mean, it's something that's becoming a third of the project going forward, rightfully so, it's necessary. But it, it carries a lot of challenges in terms of inclusivity um, and the digital divide. Not all individuals who run a DPO have access to the internet or can use sort of complicated web designs with ease. Um, this theme also looked at inclusivity quite a lot and the inclusivity of DPOs that worked in, um, you know, impairment specific uh, challenges that tend to be marginalised within the disability space in general. So, for example, mental health doesn't always appear at the forefront of the disability movement's demands. And so DPOs that worked in mental health felt like lots of their challenges were marginalised. And as a result, they didn't get told about the funding opportunities and the projects and everything that was going on that keeps us alive. In the same way, organisations that were intersectional, so those groups that worked in um, for example, anti-racism as well as disability at the same time, they also had the same experiences because they felt that intersectional understandings of disability was often marginalized. So how can we do this work to connect to the sector, but also do so in a way that is more inclusive and brings more DPOs in and more groups in without sort of being quite um, harsh and uh, marginalizing in the way in which we function? Yeah, I mean, it's that thing about being as inclusive as possible to as many people as possible, isn't it? And those groups you talk about, you know, so groups that work specifically with with, with specific groups of disabled people, is particularly in intersectional spaces, there are so few of those organisations around, you know, yeah. so it's really difficult for someone down here in Cornwall again to get in touch with, with, a, with a specific DPO that's going to understand more about what their needs are so they will get in contact with our dpo and our dpo then has to be skilled up to be able to meet those challenges and to meet the needs of those people yeah 
Yeah, and, and what I've found as well, Theo, is that um, some of these organisations are quite used to being dismissed within the disability movement generally because of the fact that what they do and the way they work is marginalised. So, you know, the challenge now is when we want to get in contact with them and we want to say, you know, we want to make this space more inclusive, they have their guards up, rightfully so. I would be the exact same way. And so connecting with them and even the sort of traditional email way is probably is becoming quite challenging um, and it also comes with the sort of demand to boost the rest of the DPOs and being more inclusive you know it's it's all well and good for you know Disability Cornwall and Disability Rights UK, UK who are you know we've talked about this before we're both engaging in being more intersectional by design more inclusive by design um, but there are lots of DPOs who don't really know much about intersectionality or inclusion probably because a lot of these conversations are in spaces that they themselves are marginalized from, places like academia, um, the internet, you know, TikTok, social media. Um, so there's a lot of marginalization from lots of ends that has to be broken down in order for us to be more inclusive. It's very um, structural, unfortunately, as well as um, interpersonal. Yeah. And, you know, like you say, there's a lot of people who are going to be who might even be wary of coming to some organisations because they've got previous experience at other organisations or with other groups of people who haven't been as welcoming. You know, I remember yeah. talking to somebody years ago now and he said, how do I describe myself? Am I a white male wheelchair using gay man or am I a gay white male? You know what I mean? <laughs> so it depends yeah. on which order you put all your words in as well. So yeah. it's how you label yourself. It's like, and then and then you find that they're not particularly welcome in one sector but they are finally welcome in another sector but or they're not you know what I mean it's like it's yeah. the intersectionality of all of it is really quite difficult to unpack yeah and the reality is is that there's lots of people who don't just exist in two intersections they exist in a plethora I mean the the definition is is useful it's opened doors for many people to sort of broaden their experience of a very holistic marginalization from multiple places. But intersectionality can be quite um, vertical in general. You know, it doesn't completely, you know, express the whole human experience. So even just defining what um, these organizations are, who these people are, you know, I've myself experienced lots of challenges in defining myself. Um, and being very sensitive to that and listening rather than talking for these people and these organizations, I think is key here. You know, uh, I spoke to a few people internally as well as uh, Disability Cornwall on how we can create more spaces for intersectional DPOs. And it comes down to also the definition of an intersectional DPO, whether we should be titling it that because it then puts disability first. And a lot of people experience that holistically instead of I'm disabled and yeah and so you're talking about your research <laughs> yes we've gone Correct off on if a I'm plan. wrong but I think you might have just covered one of the quarters I did yeah so maybe I'll, I'll keep it a little brief with the other ones for the sake of time but um if anyone does want to get in contact with me and I can break down that research um more and there's also free access to the report so the second quarter of the sector was called survival in a turbulent climate and this particularly looked at the operational withstanding of the DPO sector overall but also you know looking at them individually um, specifically post-COVID-19 so it's looking at a climate where in the middle of lockdown where a lot of organizations and importantly funding organizations and the local government were strifely aware of the impacts of the pandemic let loose quite a lot of emergency fundings and this was brilliant it allowed a lot of these organizations to survive but as a result a lot of these funding organizations have emptied their reserves they don't have anything left and the government is also talking about their experience in the same way so there isn't much left for dpos in 2023 to sort of access despite the fact that disabled people still need a lot of service use um, you know they still need our organizations to be running at a speed and a capacity larger than before the, the pandemic because you know our needs haven't gone away the marginalization of our communities haven't gone away it's become worse during the pandemic you know none a lot of us aren't wearing masks anymore but there's still uh, long-term impacts of the pandemic as well as a lot of people from 
COVID-19 developing uh, long-term illnesses like long COVID as well. So we have more disabled people that we want to represent in either our campaigning or service use services rather. There's also still people catching COVID, you know. We know There's still people catching COVID, yeah. A lot of disabled people are still isolating and are still keeping themselves away from and still need, you know, yeah. medicines delivered, food delivered, and a lot of the stuff that DPOs did during the pandemic, they still need that to be happening. They still need it now, but the problem is now that DPOs can't do it to no. the capacity that they did because they don't have the funding anymore. The emergency fundings are completely gone. So how did these DPOs survive? This specifically looked at the sort of financial situation, and this is where the quantitative data came into it. It sort of looked at um, how much money in reserves the DPOs had. Not all DPOs in the UK, we looked at the Charity Commission's reporting. So not all organisations define themselves as DPO on the Charity Commission. In fact, the Charity Commission doesn't have a section where you can define yourself as a DPO. We had to cross-check that internally. But it, it, it sort of, in summary, found that, you know, the financial situation for a lot of DPOs um, is worse post the pandemic, which could be expected. We did find quite a wide range in the experiences of DPOs. So some of the larger ones seemed to be doing reasonably well, hitting all their sort of financial targets, but the smaller DPOs, as expected, were struggling a lot more. Um, and in my, my qual analysis, so talking about the conversations with organizations, we discussed the fact that a lot of DPOs are thinking about moving outside the charity and funding model to survive, whether they want to explore becoming CICs, um, as well as the way in which the funding system is set up, not in favor of disabled people's organizations, but really in favor of large charities um, and global or national organizations that represent or well don't represent disabled people in their body and makeup but talk about disability a lot and so those organizations that are quite large have the money to apply for a funding manager whereas a lot of smaller dpos don't do that that's usually the ceo or um you know anyone who runs a project at the time has to do it within the capacity that they do and so the funding system even on top of that is quite challenging for DPOs, you know, the language that the funders use, the way in which the system is set up, a lot of DPOs found it to be quite ableist in its design, um, and not particularly inclusive of the um, reasonable adjustments that a lot of DPOs need being ran by disabled people themselves. So that was that theme. And just, and then, to, just quickly, in passing, yeah, go for it. just to unpack, you said a lot of um, DPOs becoming uh, CICs, the CIC is a charity incorporated company. Uh, yeah, so I so they're exploring becoming CICs. I haven't got any evidence CIC stand for? actually becoming. I don't know. I don't know what it stands for, unfortunately. I think there, it's but a I so incorporate something incorporated charity incorporated something like that yeah but in in essence it it means an organization that sort of brings in their own revenue and doesn't rely on funders i don't know the exact breakdown but um ah, community interest company i remember that community interest company yeah oh. yeah that is it for sure and they're also exploring you know different ways in which they can bring in revenue um in a for-profit sort of sense outside of the charity model and you know it speaks to the DPO space in general, the fact that we've been very responsive and always explored ways of being flexible to survive. And this is just another example of it. We're exploring ways of moving outside of the funding model. DPOs also talked about the sort of ways in which that could liberate them. In essence, you know, some organizations rely on local government tenders and funding to survive. Long-term funding doesn't exist as frequently as it used to, but short-term funding does, which means that a lot of DPOs don't really have the time, space, or ability to be quite um, progressive and argumentative with government policies. Because if I'm if I want to, you know, pick up the next tender that my local authority is going to give out. I don't I'm not really in a sort of political position that I can argue with some of the policies that they're releasing currently because I need I can't create a sort of poor relationship with them because we need this tender funding to survive as an organization and it's quite a difficult position to be in to be the sort of voice of disabled people but also relying on the government to carry on the work that we do can't bite the hand that feeds you absolutely yeah I mean, the whole thing about the whole sort of having a funding manager like you say you know some of the bigger charities they all have funding managers it's yeah. really difficult to find a funder to mm. fund a funding manager 
Yeah. <laughs> it's a really difficult one to find. So I think verbatim, I heard that sentence about three or four times in my research, you know, and also, you know, core funding grants is quite a difficult thing to fund for position grants is quite hard to fund for a lot of funders purely you know in their sort of strategy care a lot about vertical programs which doesn't ultimately serve the disability movement too much it's a holistic horizontal challenge to break down disablement in society it's not going to be fixed with three or four programs but that's the model that we survive on yeah short-term project funding that's where it all goes yeah what that means is that our organizations what happens is we have a size and then you might get a bit of funding to do a project and so your organization grows to meet that and then suddenly the funding finishes after three years and it goes back to a different size again and then you yeah, lose staff absolutely. you're losing skills you're losing you know you lose capacity but you just lose such a lot of knowledge yeah yeah and and staffing was a particularly prominent theme in in this sort of third quarter about internal capacity and resourcing it looked at the challenges of dpos in maintaining um retaining and, and also recruiting highly skilled disabled people the challenge being just like you said you know they have to let people go if they don't have another project to put them on um, and those individuals being disabled people are now going to be without employment so it poses a, a sort of societal challenge but also they carry a lot of skills that we need to survive as a dpo they carry experience in the sector um, and recruitment costs costs money so two or three years down the line where we have the money for another project we have to then invest more in recruiting other person and that money could have gone directly to the work that we do regularly um dpos in, in this regard also talked about uh, struggling to um, hire young disabled people as well. This generally speaks to what we were talking about earlier about the sort of separation between young disabled people and, and the DPO space. You know, I, I've spoken to a few younger people and they've said, you know, quite, quite plainly, I didn't even know that the disabled people's organization space existed. I didn't know that there was an entire sector dedicated to our rights. Um, and so so as a result we don't really get many new recruits who are skilled in the sort of things that are needed in today's day and age like evidence and evaluation how to demonstrate impact those things are being taught at the moment to um, the younger generation who want to work in the sort of progression of our rights but don't even know that we exist so a lot of my work now is to sort of connect the younger people with the movement going forward and, and that's quite an optimistic place to be in but on the other end, you know, in terms of resourcing and capacity building, data came up a lot. We exist in a world where you, you have to show either in your campaigning or in funding applications quite rigorous evidence, um, like uh, across multiple years with, with large populations that DPOs don't have the capacity to take um, in comparison to larger charities and so our sort of perspectives on policies or funding services don't often be are not often taken as sort of rigorous and at the level of expertise that we can actually offer because we don't have the capacity to do empirical data collection um, and this theme talked a lot about similar sort of areas of resourcing that's quite challenging for dpos but quite purely because of our limited capacity to maintain it yeah i mean it's it's a thing that comes up over and over and over again isn't it the whole thing about capacity yeah longevity you know the sector we've been going now since the 1970s so getting on 40 or 50 50 years um which is quite a long time but it's still a really new sector and it's still a really new thing mm. you know this whole sort of um it's it's quite an amazing thing we we need to build capacity so that we can get that sort of knowledge going and which spans generations so that we can get younger people involved and the whole yeah. thing about younger people as well so there's an issue around you know a lot of the sector is get a lot of the people in the sector are getting older and so will naturally retire and yeah. move on from their jobs and so you want to be having younger people coming in to fill your roles as you're moving on so you need yeah, to be absolutely. doing that mentoring that mentoring work is something which we really don't have capacity for yeah and it, it takes time to organize mentoring but it's quite a fulfilling process it, in, in many cases mentoring and internships leads to identifying people who could be your future employees and the future leaders of your organization but it takes a lot of work and what i'm trying to do at the moment is really identify exactly what's needed from organizations like 
Disability Rights UK, um, but also academic institutions, what we can ask of them to push um, more people to be mentored um, uh, by the sort of experienced DPOs and chairmen. And I think it's quite um, an exciting prospect because it allows us to progress as a movement and survivors organizations. It, it faces an expiry if we can't continue the movement going forwards. Uh, but the challenge is to do so in a way that doesn't demand more of DPOs that don't have the capacity to take on another intern if they're doing it all themselves. Interesting space though. And so that's three of the four sectors. Is there a fourth one? Yeah, there is. And this one's potentially the most surprising. It was something that I didn't anticipate coming into this role, but quite frequently, quite literally a quarter of the time, the DPOs talked about the sort of general broader space in which the DPO sector operates in. And this is something that I've touched on in other areas. There's a lot of fluidity between these quarters. And it's also, if, if you work at a DPO, you're very much aware of it. Um, but it's the sort of socio-economic and political sphere that we work in and how it imposes barriers on the survival of DPOs. It's called the sector and its barriers. And it looks at the sector as sort of a complete whole within a sort of the, the society of the UK specifically that we work in. It tackles different areas. So the first being the sort of funding, accreditation and, and government, government challenges. So this touches on the funding piece a little bit about the fact that not enough funders are particularly inclusive of disabled people who write applications for different tenders in their design or sort of providing reasonable adjustments, etc. But it also takes into consideration the fact that not a sufficient amount of local authority um, communities or funders or accreditors prioritize disabled led or service user led groups. This is a, a challenge within the disability movement quite broadly. You know, the fact that generally we're not considered to be the experts in leading our own causes. I've worked in multiple areas of human rights and it would be um, particularly improbable of me to work for an anti-racist group that was led by people who weren't people of color. It, it, it would be improbable, but by converse in the disability space, it's very prominent for organizations to work in disability, but are not led by disabled people. Isn't and that amazing? Is that not amazing? <laughs> yeah. I do find it amazing. This is something which I just can't get my head around at all. Yeah, and, so and it's quite outranging, actually. I wouldn't work for a women's organization if I was a bloke. You wouldn't work for a man's organization if you're a woman. You wouldn't, you know, it's just, hang on a minute. How come we've got non-disabled people representing us and telling us what it is that we need? Yeah, and representing us in very large spaces with a lot of financial backing and a lot of um, recognition among government and in media spaces as well. And I think that's the biggest challenge here is why overall as a society, we're so eager to accept us as disabled people not being represented by ourselves. Why is it seen as okay that, um, uh, you know, carers and parents and family members speak for us instead of ourselves? Where is our voice in our own space? You know, we talk about it in the disability movement, I think about us without us, um, but so frequently our conversations about us led by people who are not us. Um, and that's represented in the barriers that are experienced by DPOs. You know, Lloyd's quite um, recently put out a uh, dedicated funding stream for disabled people's organizations. And this is particularly the first of its kind. Um, the Together Fund at Disability Rights UK does that, or did that rather, it's coming to a close. But, um, you know, other funders don't do this. They don't lead service user-led work. Um, in general, you know, from what I know is that it's not too common in other human rights spaces when it comes to funders as well. So this is a systemic problem. Um, and this is true in, in local authority as well. You know, a lot of challenges that we're having is to can talk to um, MPs and policymakers in a way in which we're respected as experts in our own right on disability. And this just isn't considered. We're considered as um, charity organizations who care a lot about the cause, but not actual experts and consultants on disability. Um, and it's, it's quite problematic. It's also present in academia, you know, 
the work in which you do at the moment, Theo, in the academic space is also the first of its kind when it comes to projects ran by disabled people that is writing about disability. Um, and so this poses real systemic barriers to the sector and requires quite a political move on organisations like Disability Rights UK who want to do capacity building to urge in a lobbying work and campaigning work and promotional work the expertise and deserved expertise of the disability space, um, disabled people's organisations quite specifically. And it also talks about the challenges in the same sort of political space of organisations that work outside of campaigning. So for those of you who don't know too much about the DPO sector, you know, we're pretty varied in the way in which we act. Some organisations work in campaigning and some organisations work in a lot of service delivery. It's just the way in which they were set up or, or changed over time to, to um, survive in the UK. But organisations that specifically work in service delivery don't particularly have time to partake in um, national political campaigns. And although they have a voice and they really want to talk about the local um, policy that's going on, again, I touched on this before, it comes down to policy issues about you know, speaking against the local authority. But even in the absence of that, uh, DPOs don't have the capacity to go on a, a Twitter storm or to head down to parliament to sort of protest. So how can we support organisations in uplifting their political voice despite the very limited capacity to do so, but also quite importantly do so in a way that is co-produced and then is not speaking for DPOs um, and really sort of letting them define how and where, which way we act in putting a microphone in front of them. And so it's a space really for Disability Rights UK, isn't it? There is a space there. So we all think that we know. So there's lots of big charities, lots of big disability charities that have incomes of tens of millions and hundreds of millions of pounds. And we all know that and Disability Rights UK gets lumped in with them. So back, back in the day, if you go back to the 1990s, the first job I had in the disability sector was when I worked for an organisation called RADAR, which yeah. was the Association of Disability and Rehabilitation. And something like in 2010 or 2011, three organisations got together and formed one organisation and it was RADAR, the Disability Alliance and the National Centre for Independent Living and they all became Disability Rights UK. And when I worked for RADAR, the perception among disabled people and the people that I came into contact with every day was that, oh, you're one of those big organisations, you've got tens of millions of pounds, you're doing all this work, how come you're not spending it better doing this, that and the other? And it was always a surprise to them when I said, no, our income is less than £2 million and there's like 15 staff and we all work our, our socks off. Yeah. And I think with yeah. Rights UK, you get a lot of the similar kind of stuff because people don't know about the size of your organisation. I think you're not one of those big, massive charities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I we've just um, taken on one new person, so I couldn't speak on the exact number of us, but from last time I remembered, we're about an organisation of 25 um, and we're not a massive you know charity organization um with with uh you know that isn't really representative of the group and we are rather importantly a dpo we are led by disabled people we are ran by disabled people our board are disabled people um and i suppose potentially because of the name being disability rights uk potentially because of our media presence um we can be perceived as not particularly among the dpo um group so we've done some work to sort of reposition ourselves and and make you know our identity as an organization quite clear um and we i suppose you know it's understandable that organizations should be critiqued and it's something that we're always open to um, but yeah, just to make it abundantly clear that we are a DPO um, and because of our position really in the sort of political arena rather than grassroots work, although we do do service delivery as well, um, specifically on things like our advice lines, we have the scope to really sort of bring other DPOs who are our peers along the way in terms of voicing their experiences in policy. A lot of my work now is specifically focused on promoting the rightful expertise of the DPO sector. And it's it's um, a space that I didn't anticipate being in, but um, it's one that it was urged upon me by my peer DPOs and therefore it's, it's where I am. And it's needed as well. You know, the 
the fact that I have uh, a quarter, a third really of my time specifically dedicated to promoting the DPO sector as experts is, is a privilege. Um, it's rare amongst other DPOs. So it's it's something that hopefully will have quite long-term impact um, for the sector going forward. And so those are the four sectors of your research. It uh, is, yeah. Something that happened at the beginning was that you said that you interviewed DPOs, but then you also interviewed six non-DPOs. Yeah, and yeah, I did. A question that I've got for you at the end of that sort of discussion about DPOs is, are we a distinct sector? Is the DPO sector a distinct sector or is it just the voluntary sector? Are the issues the same in the voluntary sector or do we have specific issues which we're, we're tackling? It's a really interesting um, conversation, Theo, and I think we've spoken about this before. So for sure, there is overlap between the experiences of the voluntary sector, of the charity sector in general. But I would argue from my research that we are a distinct identity from our makeup, our history, the way in which we function, and also our design um, and the experiences of the, the members of the DPOs who work here. You know, we're regarded as quite unique in the way in which we function. Um, however, broadly, we are generally just considered externally as members of just the broader charity space. You know, I mentioned earlier the fact that, you know, there isn't a, a section on the charity commission, for example, where you can identify as a DPO. We're all sort of lumped in as charities. And what I would really like this work to do is to sort of distinguish ourselves from the broader space when it comes to um, bodies and authorities that really sort of define us we should be defining ourselves and I think a lot of DPOs are keen on defining themselves um, outside of spaces and quite different from spaces that don't represent us so there we go that's the work you've been doing it's um it's not a small bit of work it's a big bit no, of work it's, it's kind of a little <laughs> bit groundbreaking um you know there's there's reports that come out every now and again, but I think you have the real impact and the real real chance to make some serious changes. I think with the capacity within the organisation to increase the capacity of the DPO sector to better represent ourselves and to raise our voice at a level like you say, you know, it's quite often frustrating for an organisation like ours to think, hang on a minute, someone should be saying this to government. And so it's great to have that as a as a kind of a conduit, a pathway, so we can say to you, hey, look, this is happening down here. And you can say, well, actually, that's happening everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I yeah. think that the great part is, is that this work, not in itself, I think this conversation has carried on beforehand. And what I would really like to stress is as much as this post is new and this project is new, working to better the DPO sector is not a new um a new project that's been taken up there's been lots of dpos that have been worked on this before thankfully we're all talking so that i can learn from their um wonderful guidance but the the, the beauty of this is the fact that it is bringing dpos along the way it isn't disability rights uk sort of being the voice of dpos it's more that we are we have the space to facilitate the vision of dpos and so we're allowing sort of creating the bridges so that um DPOs can sort of make the stances on their own and being driven purely by DPOs is quite important to this work so Theo I, I mentioned before is sitting on my board my steering group board but it, you're along with I think around nine other DPOs who are sitting along with me and making the decisions here so I think the unique part of this work is that it isn't me Rebecca Taylor Edwards it isn't Disability Rights UK it is the sort of collective voice of DPOs and Hopefully that will enable it to be quite critical going forward and making sure that we are driven by our unique voices continually. Um, so what's the long-term vision? What do you think the future looks like? I mean, you know, everyone talks about how what we need to have is we need to have core funding for disabled people's organisations so that we've got a bit more capacity mm. so we can do that campaigning work that we also need to be doing and so that we get recognised as being the experts that we are. I mean. What, what do you see? How do you see that? Do you see that happening? I think the expertise piece has a lot of scope here. And I'm going to say that from a few uh, conversations that I've had with rather large academic institutions. I won't name. But I'm talking to academic institutions, as I said before, to promote the DPO sector as a very viable career option for young disabled people. And what I found really interesting about this work is the openness and um 
response to quite a fair lobbying campaign that says we should represent our own people um, and we should be doing so and recognized for that as experts in the sort of professionalized sense and the sort of traction behind quite a simple demand um, that is unwavering is quite impressive and I think there is a lot of scope for DPOs granted if a lot of DPOs are quite sort of succinct in uh, banging the drum of our expertise, which I don't know a single DPO that isn't, um, there's a lot of room for us to really demand our position as experts. You know, it's happened in other human rights spaces. And so we can benefit from those who work alongside us for progression of human rights. Um, and this sort of, I imagine that the best way forward is to be quite strategic about who we sort of demand this from and hope that it sort of creates a, a ripple effect. So academic institutions is one of the areas that I'm targeting, but I'm also targeting quite importantly funders and accreditors in being quite clear on um, the demand of our expertise and the fact that that should be responded to with tangible, tangible products and tangible projects to recognize us financially for our service. Um, but local government is another area that is in the sort of horizons of targeting and that's not something I will be doing in silo it's being done with a whole body of political minds much more intelligent than I am in targeting local authority and being quite clear in our demands to be recognized for our expertise so I think that is um something that has quite a, a sh I think a lot of optimism there and I'd say in the other sense there's a lot of hope in my opinion in in sort of bringing along the young disabled people and the movement that they've almost created independently, not knowing that the DPO sector existed in bringing them along. And I think the demands of today's disability movement is so radical and progressive, it does not waver in its stances. Um, and so I think as when we go along together and are quite adamant about our inclusivity, recognition of intersectionality, there's a lot of power and force that we can bring to um to society so that that's my foresight for the future but I'm not a futurist right no it's very optimistic so that's a nice thing to hear about you know it's a great note to end on i would say it's uh, <laughs> great to have an optimistic view of the future like that yeah for sure i i think the the future can be bright as long as we are quite clear on the fact that we should create it Hey, listen, Rebecca, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you very much for all of your time. Is there any kind of final thing you'd like to say that we haven't spoken about? No, nothing from me, Theo. Um, the only thing I would say is just to plug my details for anyone who listens, if that's okay. I'm sure that's all right to put in your sort of bio of the, the podcast. But if anyone does want to get in contact with me, my um, my email is Rebecca dot taylor which is about er dash edwards at disability rights uk.org and uh, you know just to be to end on the note that this work is built and designed to be in partnership with disabled people and dpos so if any organization really wants to get involved in sort of steering my path then it is something i'm more than open to and also critique i'm very open to different organizations sort of saying oh well this isn't the way in which we think you should be working, we think you should be working more inclusively over here, et cetera. And I think it's it's particularly important. So that's my last two cents. Hey, listen, brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. And do contact Rebecca because she is open and willing to listen. Um, speak to you very soon. Speak to you later. Thank you, Theo. Bye. Bye-bye.